Well, have you ever felt uh, like a write-off? Like you were dismissed before you even really had a chance to be considered? And maybe it was uh, when you were applying for college or uh, for a promotion at work. Just you were, you were written off before you even had a chance uh, to be considered. Uh, maybe it's uh, when you were trying to try out for a team uh, at school, a sports team. Or maybe with the kids in your class. They just didn't even give you a chance. Um, I think those of us uh, in Kansas City who are Royals fans uh, know what it's like to have been written off uh, for a long time, for decades, not paid attention to. Um, I mean, we, I think we all know, we've all had the experience of being written off. But we also need to consider, who do we write off? Especially when it comes to church, when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the gospel, who are those who, who we have written off, who we think are just too far gone, uh, too different to, to come to faith? Now, I, I think for most Christians, for most of us gathered here this morning who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, we would say, uh, cognitively would say, well, of course, no one's too far gone. Anyone can come to Jesus. But in practice, if, if we're really honest with ourselves, we know in our hearts and our minds there's people who we, we just don't think would, would ever come to church, much less come to faith in Jesus. And Rosaria Butterfield would have probably fit into that category for most Christians. She described herself as a leftist, lesbian English professor who despised Christians and, and recently, she told her story in Christianity Today magazine, and she writes, The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and my wrath, she writes. Stupid, pointless, meaningless. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, whose paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo, shampoo commercial model. A total write-off, right? I mean, how is someone like that going to come to faith in Jesus? But then she writes, somehow I did. After publishing an article in the local newspaper, which she attacked, which she called the unholy trinity of Jesus, Republican politics, and patriarchy, Rosario kept two boxes on her desk. One for hate mail and one for fan mail. But then one day, she received a letter from a local church pastor that didn't fit in either box. She writes this. She says, it was a kind, inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? She says, Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. And she says, I didn't know how to respond, and so I threw it away. But later that night, she fished it out of the recycle bin and put it back on her desk, where she writes, it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. And with that letter, Rosario explains, Ken initiated a two-year period of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Ken and his wife and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. And they did not act as if these conversations were polluting them. They didn't treat me like a blank slate. We ate together. 
Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of sin in front of me. He thanked God for all kinds of things. Ken's God was holy and firm and yet full of mercy. She started reading the Bible, and then one Sunday she decided to attend Ken's church. So this person who most Christians probably would have put in the category of write-off was now attending church. But I think it's easy for all of us to, to do this. And we just think certain people are just too far, too far gone, too far out of reach. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and that you feel like that's you, that you're too far gone. Maybe a friend invited you to come this morning, you're here with someone from work and you're like, that's me, I'm, I'm too far gone. Maybe you've felt like you've been written off. Maybe the church has written you off. Or maybe, like you said, you've written yourself off. Told yourself, I could never change. I could never believe this stuff. I could never be forgiven for what I've done. Maybe some of you feel that way this morning. And you're not alone. In John chapter 4, we encounter a woman who was definitely a write-off. And yet what we discover as we look at this passage is that we can never write off who Jesus runs after. We can never write off who Jesus runs after. And as we continue looking at the Gospel of John, we see encounter after encounter where Jesus meets people where they're at, he listens to them, and then he inevitably points them to himself. We saw in John chapter 1, he encountered the skeptic, Nathaniel. And then he encountered the satisfied at the wedding in John chapter 2. Last week, we saw Jesus listening to the religious as he encountered Nicodemus. And this week, he encounters the Samaritan woman at the well, and we see him listening to the social outcast, the write-off, the person no one wanted to be with. And in this passage, we're going to see three things. We're going to see who Jesus runs after, we're going to see how he runs after them, and then we're going to see what the result of that is. So who does Jesus run after? How does he run after them? And then what is the result? So first, who does Jesus run after? Well, Jesus runs after the write-offs. He runs after those who no one else is interested in. And we see this in John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, grab one in the pew. I'd love for you to follow along. John chapter 4. And the story opens in John chapter 4 with Jesus deciding to leave Galilee and travel to Judea. So those are two different regions in the ancient Near East. But this trip of going from Galilee in the north to Judea in the south required passing through Samaria. And Jesus and his disciples were Jews. And Jews during this time, they hated Samaria and Samaritans. More on why in a moment. But the reality was the fastest way to Judea was through Samaria. You could go way out of your way to avoid it, but, but you usually didn't. And this is sort of like for KU fans. If you're, if you're going to drive to St. Louis, you know, the best way is to go I-70 through Columbia. I mean, you don't like going through Columbia. Um, it would be nice if you could avoid it. If you really wanted to, you could take another route around. But usually you just go through Columbia. And you just hope you don't have to stop for gas or McDonald's when you're there, right? Well, Jesus and his followers, they're traveling through Samaria, and they do have to stop. It's lunchtime, they need food, and they need water. Look at verse 5. 
So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, so it's about noon. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now this is where the story starts to get interesting. So Jesus sees this woman who's come to draw water, and he says to her, give me a drink. For his disciples, John tells us, had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? A, a woman, a, a Samaria, a Samaritan woman. And then John adds this little parenthetical comment. For Jews have no dealings with, no, nothing in common with the Samaritans. Okay, so why is this such a big deal? I mean, for us, 2,000 years and a culture away, it, this doesn't necessarily seem that shocking. Jesus is talking to a woman, asking her for a drink. But in the original context, this was absolutely stunning. So what's going on here? Well, there's two things. First, Jesus is talking to a woman. In that cultural context of the ancient Near East, Men and women didn't speak to one another in public, much less alone in public. So the picture is here, it's just Jesus and this woman. There's no one else around. And so Jesus, in doing this, he would have probably could have been mistakenly perceived even as being flirtatious. And yet Jesus is breaking all of the rules of piety and what is proper to talk to this woman. But second, not only is Jesus here talking to a woman, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. And I said we would get to this. Why is the Samaritan thing such a big deal? Well, to understand this, we have to go back a few hundred years in history from the time of this incident. So if you back up from the Samaritan woman at the well, back 800 years, we begin to understand why is this such a big deal? 800 years ago, Israel had its two greatest kings, King David and King Solomon. But after King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel is broken into two. And you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom remains stable for a while, but the northern kingdom is conquered by the emperor, emperor of Assyria. And when Assyria conquered that northern part of Israel, they imported all kinds of foreigners into the land. This was part of their, their process of subduing nations. They brought all kinds of foreigners into the land. They deported people from the land. And now Samaria is a place where you have people with different religious beliefs, mixed uh, interactions, and so the Jews of this day felt like the Samaritans were subpar. They worshipped at a different temple. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. So they had totally written them off. They were radically unwanted and they were religiously aberrant in the mind of the Jews. But Jesus, he ignores all of this. He ignores the barriers, the lines, what is proper, what's politically correct. You never write off who Jesus runs after. So that Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman is shocking enough, but this woman is on the margins even of her own society, even of her, her own people. Because the implication, she's there drawing water at noon. Most of the women would have gone in a group together in the morning to draw water. This woman's there alone by herself in the middle of the day, the, the, the brightest part of the day, the hottest part of the day. The implication is that, that she was an outcast. We learn later on that she has had five husbands. 
And, and whether those husbands had died, whether they had left her, whether she had left them, you know, none of those are good scenarios for her. And we find out that she's living with someone who's not even her husband. You feel like maybe somebody should warn that guy. Um, it hasn't worked out for at least five other people. Um, in short, she couldn't be more different than Nicodemus, who we looked at last week. And it isn't an accident that John has placed Nicodemus and, and the Samaritan woman right next to one another in, in his gospel. I mean, Nicodemus was a respected Jewish religious man. She is a socially outcast Samaritan woman. He is pious. She's promiscuous. He seems like the epitome of what it meant to lead the blessed life, and she seems kind of cursed. And yet, what John shows us is that Jesus views them both as equally and desperately in need of rescue. And he offers eternal life to them both. So don't write off who Jesus runs after. And, and the question for us is, who do we write off? People who look differently, act differently than us? who dress differently, who, who are on a different income or, or social, moral status or level than us. A woman in a Muslim burqa, a young man and his partner. Maybe it's a whole group of people. Uh, maybe it's the, the kid at school who keeps picking on you. But we can't write off who Jesus runs after. Because here's the thing, ultimately, you, you can't write off people who you identify with. And Jesus identifies this, with this woman, and, and ultimately, he identifies with each one of us because he's God, the very Son of God, who's come, I mean, he's the creator of the universe, but, but he comes and he takes on humanity. He becomes a man. And what we find here, Jesus at the well, he's the, the source of all power and energy, and yet he is tired. He identifies. He knows what it is to be tired. He's the one who created, spoke the oceans into existence, and he's thirsty. Jesus identifies with us. And really it reveals deep down, I think, it's pretty easy sometimes when we dismiss people. The, the, the reason we do that is because we, we don't identify with them. Because when I dismiss someone as being too far gone or, or too different, it reveals a whole lot about who I think I am. Right? It reveals deep down that I think it was actually pretty easy for God to save me. And if really, God should be pretty thankful that he found me, right? I was a pretty good addition to the team. I mean, I ended up being a pastor and all this stuff. I, mean, I, was, I got a good deal in this, right? But for God to save them, whoever they are, now that's going to take a miracle. But here's the thing. If we can't identify with the outcast, we haven't understood the gospel. Because if there's anything we as Christians believe, it's that we are all outcasts. That God, to save me, had to come and die on a cross. The very God of the universe. That's how broken and messed up every single one of us is. It says in verse 27 that the disciples marveled that Jesus was talking to this woman. And, and if you look at where that word marvel is used in other places, it's used to describe the disciples' reaction to Jesus stilling the storm. 
to him casting out demons. It's even used to describe them when they see Jesus risen from the dead. In short, Jesus talking to this woman was as earth-shattering, shocking to the disciples as any of Jesus' miracles. And the question for us, do we see the fact that Jesus has come to you and to me as a miracle? That he offers rescue to someone like me as a miracle? Do you believe that? One of the marks of, of a true Christian is that they never get over their salvation. They never get over the fact that God saved someone like me. Isn't this amazing that he would save someone like me? It's one of the true marks of the gospel's taken deeper. You never get over the surprise, the shock, the joy of the miracle that, that he would rescue me. So are you surprised? So who does Jesus run after? He runs after the outcasts, the, the write-offs. But next we need to ask the question, how does he run after them? What does it look like when Jesus runs after them, when he pursues them? We'll look back at the story. Remember, Jesus had just asked this woman for a drink, and she said, how can you ask me for a drink? And look at verse 10 and how Jesus responds. So Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and he who is that said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? I love the woman's candor here at this point in the text. She's like, uh, Jesus, it's cool that you say this, you have this living water, but you don't, have, you don't have a bucket. You don't have anything. How are you going to even get this to me? And this really continues the theme from last week as well, that Jesus is constantly being misunderstood. Remember Nicodemus? He says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is kind of scratching and said, Jesus, what, what do you mean I've got to be born again? Climb back inside my mom? What is this about? And so Jesus clarifies. He, he's not talking about the water in the well. Because everyone who drinks that water will get thirsty again. But what Jesus offers will satisfy her thirst forever. And now she's pumped. I mean, she, I mean who wouldn't be, right? I mean, she's super excited. I mean, I get excited about finding inexpensive LED light bulbs that last for 20 years uh, at, at Ikea. She's getting water that's going to last for a lifetime. That's what she thinks. I mean, she hated going to that well every day. So when Jesus says, I'm giving you water that's never going to run out, that's going to leave you always satisfied, she's thrilled. So she says, Jesus, give me this water. And then what does Jesus do? He says, great, why don't you go grab your husband, come, and then we'll, we'll talk more. And I love how Eugene, Eugene Peterson translates this next verse in the message, verses 17 and 18. Just listen to this. So she replies, I have no husband, she said. And then Jesus says, oh, that's nicely put. <laughs> I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. But what Jesus is doing in this moment, you see, he's, he's gently but firmly going right to the heart of her biggest shame, of her biggest failure in life. And he's saying, look, you don't have to hide anymore. He says, I know who you are. I know what you've done. All, I know all the things you've been trying to fill your life with, and, and I'm here to offer you something better. Jesus runs towards sinners, but he never leaves them where they are. He doesn't allow us just to continue to wallow in the brokenness of our lives. 
For he, more than anyone, wants what's best for us. He longs for us to choose the better way. And so, yes, Jesus will constantly confront us as people. And the woman, she changes the subject. So she acknowledges, well, you must be a prophet. Somehow you know about my life. But she quickly moves from the personal to the theological. And Jesus lets her go there. So she says, prophet, tell me, where are we supposed to worship? In Jerusalem with all of you Jews or on the mountain here in Samaria? And Jesus replies to her in verse 23. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then I love this. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm it. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one that you've been looking for. Me, the one talking to you. You see, we all worship something or someone No matter who you are or or what you believe, we are worshipers by design. Someone has said that we worship, we become what we worship either for our ruin or our restoration. That we become what we worship either for our ruin or our restoration. You can worship money or sex or power or family or independence or, or good works, but Jesus says, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one who replaces all of the old ways of approaching God. And God has been seeking people just like you to worship him. People just like her to worship him. Jesus doesn't say to her, you need to start working harder to clean up your life. He says, you need to worship someone better. He doesn't say worship, work harder, but worship someone better. Worship me. So how does Jesus run after us? He runs after us with grace and truth. In John chapter 1, John said that that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of grace and truth, that he's full of grace and truth. But but we, as people, we tend to be high on one and and low on the other. We we don't embody it as well as Jesus. So if you're more progressive, you tend to be all about about grace, about just love people for who they are. Everyone's basically good. Ever just accept people. Those who are more conservative tend to be all about the truth. People need to to listen up. They need to face facts. They need to change. They need to get their act together. But Jesus in the gospel embodies both without sacrificing either. He runs after the outcast. He loves her. He accepts her. He listens to her. He treats her with the utmost dignity and respect. And he also confronts her sin, tells her she's wrong about how she's worshiping, tells her she's in need of forgiveness. This is an incredible conversation. You see, you, you can't write off who you listen to. It's easy to write off those, whoever they are, but real people with faces and names who, who you've taken the time to actually engage with, it's, it's a lot harder. And sometimes as Christians, we're so quick to want to be heard that we don't even really hear the needs of questions and hurts of the people around us. Francis Schaeffer, who was a great evangelist of the late, of just the last century here in the 1900s, um, said that if he had an hour with a non-Christian, his goal would be to spend 55 minutes listening and five minutes talking. I love that. 
And listening doesn't mean leaving people where they are. Jesus certainly didn't, but it means treating them like people and not projects. So who are you listening to? Don't write off who Jesus is running after. So what's the result? When Jesus runs after the outcast, the write-offs, when he, when he does that with grace and truth, what, what's the result? What happens? Look at verse 27. When his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking to the woman, but they're, they're scared. They, no one says anything. They, no one says, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They just stand there blown away. So, so the result is both shock and joy. Shock on the part of the disciples. They can't believe this is happening. And joy on the part of the woman. And notice the text says that she leaves her jar, she leaves her bucket behind, and she runs back to the village. That's actually an important symbol. We don't want to miss the symbolism of that, that, that she's leaving behind what she used to draw with, her old ways, her old thirst. She's now tasted living water, and she's thirsty no more. And so she's filled to overflowing. The good news is, is flooding out of her. The waters of life are overspilling their banks. And look at what it says in verse 29. She gets to Samaria and she says, Come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So this person who was a write-off, this person who wasn't accepted, this person who was alone, she now becomes, she becomes a missionary. I mean, she's like, hey, everybody come see, come meet Jesus. And the whole town wants to see this Jewish rabbi who would dare accept a shameful Samaritan woman. Meanwhile, the disciples are there. They're trying to get Jesus to eat food. They brought him food back, and they said, Jesus, eat your lunch here. But Jesus doesn't want their food. He says, my food is to do the work of God. He says in verse 35, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And if you look down to verse 39, it says, Many of the Samaritans from that town, so Jesus is saying, Look, the fields are ripe for harvest, and then all these people are coming. Many from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony that he told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And so he stayed with them for two days. He ate with them. He, he slept in their beds, in their houses. And this was unthinkable. I, I can't help but wonder what the disciples were thinking at this moment. Because this is, they didn't even like stopping in Samaria. Now they're hanging out there for two days with these people. And sometimes Jesus calls us into places of great discomfort. I imagine those two days were not the most comfortable for the disciples. They didn't like walking through. They weren't planning on staying for two days. But Jesus calls us off into places we would have never expected. And then John closes the account in verses 41 and 42 with these words. He says, And many more believed because of his word, Jesus' word. And they said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that indeed this is the Savior of the world. That's key. He, Jesus isn't just the Savior of, of the Jews. He's the Savior of the whole world. Because before Jesus, every people group and every religion kind of kept to themselves. But now for the first time ever in the church, in what Jesus is building, rich and poor, slave and free, men and women, young and old, Jew and Gentile, and Samaritan, all begin gathering together to worship Jesus. And even today, Christianity is, is the only faith without a geographical center. Right? I mean, sure, it was birthed in, in the Middle East, in Palestine, 
But now, today, there are more than a billion people around the world on every continent who follow him. I mean, Islam still has Mecca, Hinduism has India, Judaism has Israel, but even secularism has the West. But Christianity, it doesn't, it's, not, it's based on a person, not on a place. So how did it happen? Well, you can't write off when, when you've been filled. Jesus was filled with God's work and he knew it must be shared. The woman was filled with living water and couldn't keep it to herself. The disciples, after Jesus' resurrection, are filled with the Spirit. And they and those who would come after them proclaimed and are proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. If Jesus has rescued you, how could we possibly dismiss another human being? I mean, Jesus could have written us off. He could have written me off. But he didn't. He came, he died, he rose again for you, for every one of us. And and if you've tasted that water, how can it not overflow? So, so for some of us this morning, we, we need to re- repent of writing people off. Those who see too far gone, too hopeless, too unlikely. For others, you need to tell someone in your life to come and see. Come and see the one who's given me living water. Or maybe just even listen to them for a while first. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're just, you're here, your boyfriend or your spouse or your neighbor brought you and you're not sure what you think about all this, maybe the response is a little different for you. Maybe ask yourself, have I written Jesus off? Have I written Christians off? Have I written myself off? Maybe, maybe you're the one that Jesus is running after this morning. And maybe a good next step for all of us would just be this. Take a look at the people or the person that you've written off. Maybe it's while you're watching the news, maybe playing on the playground, browsing through Facebook, watching people at Walmart. Because every face you see, mentally say this one thing to yourself, that there is the image of God, a person for whom Jesus died, who he is running after. And ask, might God have a role for me to play in their lives? Well, we began with Rosaria's story, but we didn't get to hear the end of it. This this write-off, she started reading the Bible, she started even coming to church, but how did she finally come to faith in Jesus? Listen to what she writes. She says, then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken, her pastor, was there. The church that had prayed for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. She said, I didn't want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world And she says, I weakly believe that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make my world right. And she says, I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. You see, that's what Jesus does. That's what he's always done. 
That's what God has always done. That's how God always works. He chooses the least likely, the unwanted, the too far gone. He chooses the write-offs. All through the Bible, we see this. I mean, if you start just start from the beginning, just start reading through the Bible, he chooses the younger sibling in a culture where the firstborn was everything. Jacob, Joseph, David, all younger brothers. He chooses the barren in a culture where fertility was everything. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah. And Jesus himself, Jesus is a write-off. He's an outcast. Remember in John chapter 1, what good can come from Nazareth? Jesus becomes the ultimate outcast on the cross so that you and I could be welcomed home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, I confess that there are people that I have written off. I think there's no way they'd come to church. There's no way that that person would be interested in who Jesus is. I pray that you would work in each one of us um, to ask for things that are way beyond us and remind us that we were too far off, we were too far gone, and you rescued us. May we never get over that. The glory of the gospel, that you would save even me, a sinner who had rebelled against you. We pray this in Jesus' name. For his glory, amen.